Good morning. My name is Joe Hendricks, and today we'll be reading from a parts of Joel chapter 2, which can be found on page 761 in the Pew Bible. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Again, that's Joel chapter 2. We'll begin in verse number. Uh, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent, and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, and let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now we'll continue uh, in verse number 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will, shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm glad you're with us. Again, especially if you're visiting from out of town uh, with family. Welcome. Hey, we're in the middle of a 12-week series on the Minor Prophets. They are a voice that is ancient that we're saying has a ton of relevance to where we find ourselves. And we're using some ideas about even letting their brokenness kind of uh, flag for us our brokenness. Their warnings flag for us warnings that we need to hear so that the hope that they talk about can be our hope as well. Uh, they, they range from the mid-8th century to the mid-5th century. There's lots of time between us and them, and yet as you read them, as you get through the poetry, you get through the oracles, you get through kind of the writing of the ancient world, and you realize, I mean, there's a ton of pain. There's a lot of longing. There's a lot of brokenness and sin and apathy and social injustice, things that we wrestle with on a regular basis. Those are what... The minor prophets are aimed at addressing, saying that God cares about that. Maybe that's the most important sentence for you 
today. God cares about the brokenness that you experience, cares about the brokenness in the world, cares about the brokenness that you cause. He cares about that. It's his world. He made it. He loves it. And the prophets over and over again are talking about his promise for justice, which is really good news for those who've been harmed. And it is a warning to those who have done the harming. And then we say both of us have done both. We have received and we have contributed to the brokenness in the world. And so we find ourselves kind of at home in some of these ancient texts. And sometimes the setting makes a huge difference in how you understand the book. So we're talking about a long time. And that season in the life of God's people, some of those are times of prosperity and wealth. And God's warning them in their apathy and their affluence. Sometimes it's come after they've had a massive war and their city has been destroyed and they're being taken off into exile and captivity and God writes in that space. So knowing where they are makes a difference in how you would engage it. Right? If you're on the top of the world and there's a warning there, that sounds different than when you have just been devastated and obliterated. So, so sometimes there's references to kings and other things that are going on in the world, natural disasters, and so scholars can kind of date certain books and some of them you can't quite date, and Joel is one of them. And sometimes in those kind of conversations, as I'm interacting with commentaries, and there's lots of conversations about where to place this and why, I normally ask, like, what you're, kind of, you're kind of going, do I stay with this, or does, will it make any difference? And what's beautiful about the book of Joel is it's written as a template of what to do when the bottom falls out. There's no clear dating in the book of Joel, and the good news is that for generations, the bottom has fallen out fell out for your parents, it fell out for your grandparents, it's fallen out for you. There's moments of your past and moments in your future where, where the bottom just seems to cave in and everything collapses. Joel writes to that situation. So we find it incredibly relevant in a broken world where we're asking, how does God fit into what we're dealing with, what we're wrestling with? So, so it doesn't really matter if it's affluence or brokenness, the bottom falls out in both of those. In that space, then we look at these writings as a way to encounter the point of all the minor prophets, which is how do we find hope in God in the middle of that? And the punchline will be you, you look to God, you look to the one who could rescue you. Even the one who actually is causing the bottom to fall out in judgment because he loves you, you look to that very one as the one who will actually rescue and save you. And the prophets are pointing not just to a generic kind of hope, but a specific hope in the promised Messiah, the one who would come that we were celebrating during the Advent season. We, we centered every service through communion. It is the hope of the human race throughout time that Jesus himself came into our world to deal with the consequences of our brokenness so that we could be set free. And so we're constantly asking, how does this point me back to Jesus? So on the back of your bulletin, we threw some questions there for you as you're reading these throughout the week, because we're asking you to encounter these throughout the week in your own private reading. As you read those, to engage with the idea that these are pointing me to Jesus. Sometimes it's a direct quote about a promised Messiah. Sometimes it's showing us our needs. Sometimes it's highlighting God's holiness. In those spaces, what we're seeing is we have a need and God promises to come and meet it. So, so Joel speaks into that space of what do we do when the bottom suddenly, perpetually, as a pattern, as a surprise, falls out. How do we actually then turn to God it creates a paradigm for us. And the good news is because God's word is living and active, I think he has a word for you. And it might have been this week. It might have been coming into the holidays. It might, it might be this time of year that reminds you of your frailty and your brokenness of 
things you're supposed to be excited and happy. All the commercials are pushing on you this ideal life and you look around your own situation and go, it doesn't feel like that. Or maybe it does feel like that and you're, and you're wondering like when your past will catch up with you or, or what do you think about for your future? Where can you find stability? Joel, Joel speaks into that space. So we're going to use three R's to kind of orient our time. We're going to talk about the ravaging, the response, and the restoration. Let me pray for us and then we'll just jump in to chapter one. Jesus, as I just described the human condition of frailty and brokenness, um, I want to ask right now in this space, by your spirit, would you attach hope to that? These words are actually hopeful words of what you promised to do, even though they come to people that are in devastating situations. So for those in the room who find themselves in devastating situations, would you now, by your spirit, speak a word of hope, a word of eternal hope, a word of present help and shelter and refuge? Uh, would you help us this morning? There's tons to be thankful for about your steadfast love is how we started the service. And I just want to ask by your spirit, you would attach who you are with where we are so we can see you. Would you help us hear your voice? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, the first R, the ravaging. Just like a traditional Thanksgiving sermon, you know, just to encourage you, you can talk about this. Golly, we need a better job of like some themes around the calendar. But here we go, the ravaging. Uh, look with me in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Joel. It says, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let the children tell their children and their children to another generation. He's saying, hey, this is a big deal. Has this ever happened before? And he's going to name two things. One is a pestilence of locusts and one is a drought. And you might go, that's not that big of a deal. In an agrarian culture, both of those would bankrupt your economy. They would lead to starvation, which then would lead to all kinds of injustice and temptation. They're in a really, really bad spot. So here's what the ravaging sounds like in verse 4. What the cutting locusts have left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust have eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Wave after wave after wave of pestilence. Have you ever been in a spot where just like, you just go like, when's enough going to be enough? Like it's just one more thing after another. It could be relational. It could be with your job. It could be a health diagnosis. And just things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And you're praying and you're asking for God to help. And you're asking your friends to pray with you and for you. And then the next wave is worse. And then the next wave is worse. That's the setting that they're in. I was thinking about my own story this week. So we got married in March of 1999, babies that we were. It snowed on our wedding day, which is amazing for pictures, until you realize that snow accumulates. And as you're driving to the airport in a little uh, Dodge Neon that doesn't traffic super well, and you come in contact with a semi-truck, that's a bad combination. So we actually got hit by a semi the day after our wedding on the way to the airport. Spins us out a couple of times knocks out our window. We're dressed to go to Jamaica. We don't have jackets. There's snow on the ground, so we're grabbing beach towels to kind of cover. We sat for hours on the side of the road waiting for the cops to come and help us. So we finally get out of that situation, get on the plane, go to our honeymoon, come back. We have this ideal six weeks. It takes that long for our car to get fixed. We get our car back on a Friday, and then the very next Monday, 
in May of 99 in Moore, Oklahoma. The largest tornado in North American history at that time rolls through our town and over our newly repaired Dodge Neon. So we're in that thing. We're in a building when it tore the roof off of the building. The whole parking lot is devastated. I can show you a picture of our little Dodge Neon from the front page of the paper squished between two pickup trucks. Like I have photographic daily Oklahoman proof of these events. So they had this massive moment. So we're like, dang, we just got the car back. And then it's lost again, right? So never buy a Dodge. That's the moral of this story. But, <laughs> but as we go on, we run to start to help. The tornado path was right along the path of a church that I was at. So my first job was to clear the choir room to make it into a morgue. That's pretty intense. Adrian's job was to be at the front desk when people would come and like report looking for their family. So either they were survivors and they're checking in so their family could find them or they're coming to look for their families. Six hours, not a single match of, yes, this person's here, they're safe. Just six hours over and over and over again of devastation. So it was really, really intense. Well, we begin immediately to start some recovery efforts. The Red Cross comes, the National Guard comes. Our church becomes like the space that we're deploying all this help for our community. And as we get started, there's another storm. And then another storm. There's rain, and it's making all the cleanup efforts difficult. The can't quite get to where you need to go because of the mud. Everything is slowing down because there's just more, and there's more, and there's more. And I remember being in a meeting, and our education pastor just said, like, God, when is enough enough? Have you ever said that out loud? Have you ever looked at your life or your job or your relationships or your health and just said, God, when is enough enough. That, that's the space that Joel is riding in. Wave after wave after wave after wave of pestilence comes at him. And it's going towards drought. So look in verse 17. The seeds shrivel under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them even the flocks of sheep they suffer so you have pestilence you have drought and things just kind of keep getting intense and worse jump to chapter 2 verse 1 blow the trumpet in zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the lord is coming and it is near a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. This is now locusts turned to armies. Their like has never been seen before, nor will it be again after them through their years for all generation. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. Worse after worse after worse. Pestilence, drought, warring armies. Drop down to verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moons, they are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, and His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? All these things are happening, and then it dawns on Joel, wait a second, God's the one behind this. Did you catch that? This is 
his army. He's the one who executes with his word. He's the one who is allowing. He's the one who is moving. He's the one who's responsible. Pestilence, drought, war. And now the very one you're praying to has allowed these things to come into your life. The ravaging. The Bible is incredibly honest and it gives you framework and hope and kind of waypoints for you. Wait, is that true of me? Where has that been true of me? Where, where have I felt that? And what would I do in that space when everything just kept crashing in on me? Where would I find God? How would I look to God? And what if he was actually in the middle of it in ways that actually were puzzling and confusing? So, so what do you do? What do you do when you feel ravaged? Takes us to our second point. Chapter 2, verse 12, is this response. And it's a response of repentance. He says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and He's merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. There's this ravaging that we experience and it makes us go, what do I do? What should I do when the bottom falls out? And the biblical framework over and over and over again is actually to turn to the very one whom we have sinned against. Turn to the very one who actually allows these disasters. Return to the very one who is orchestrating history in such a way that our sin is exposed and our frailty is felt so that we will turn to him. And he says, turn to him with all of your hearts with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. He calls for God's people as this template of what do you do when the bottom falls out, even as you have questions about where God is in the middle of it, to turn to Him. And in this little section, there's a couple of really important things. The first one is He grounds like, why on earth would you do that? Why would you turn to a God, especially if you suspect that He's part of why all these things are happening? He's the God of the tornado. He's the God of the snowstorm. He, he's the God of cancer. He's the God of the spaces in your relationships. He's the God who rules over everything. So he could stop it if he wanted to. If he allows it, you have to deal with him. These are really complicated things in our life. There's a difference between direct cause and him allowing it super mysterious. But at the least, you could say if he could stop it and doesn't, then he's in the middle of it. So, so what do you do? Why would you even turn to him? Look in the middle of verse 13. He, he grounds it. He says, return to the Lord for, for this reason, because of this. This is why you let your heart go back to God. It's because of this, because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You have the bottom falling out and you wonder, is that true? How could this actually fit my existence, my experience, my, my situation. And this promise that Joel is quoting is actually an ancient promise that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. It's a, a description of the very nature of who God is. If you're taking notes, it's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He's quoting a promise that was given to him generation after generation after generation after generation to say, hold on to who God is because at his very nature, his very essence, his character is one of mercy and grace, and one who actually is slow to anger. So when he finally is showing his anger in judgment, you can stop and sense, wait, this has been going on maybe for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. 
For God now to bring discipline on his people is like a loving parent to wake them up from their brokenness so that they might actually be healed and forgiven and set free. In those spaces, what God is doing is saying, hey, I am not quick-tempered. I don't fly off the handle. I'm not like your alcoholic father who, when you make a mistake, he rails on you. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We started the service with this repeated phrase, like we thank you, God, because of your steadfast love. And he's the God who relents over disaster. This passage will get quoted all throughout the Bible. Several of the minor prophets quote it. It's a space where it actually calls out to us to turn towards God. And this idea in verse 14 is, who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, if you were here last week, that might sound really familiar. It's a passage that Jonah quotes. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, remember, who went to Nineveh, God's enemies who had harmed God's people. And he doesn't want to go to tell them about God's mercy and grace. And he hovers around this passage multiple times in Jonah. And he's actually mad at God because he says, I know you are a gracious God. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're abounding and stuff. I knew if I went to Nineveh and warned them, you might actually relent. And I didn't want that to happen. What we actually read about in Jonah chapter 3 is that the king says these exact words. Who knows whether or not God will relent and turn? So you have a pagan king hearing about judgment. He calls for a fast. He calls for sackcloth and ashes. The king of Nineveh calls his people who are rebellious to God to pray and cry out, ask for forgiveness. And he says, who knows God might actually relent? And he does. And it ticks Jonah off. This one who actually has his hate for people exposed in God's mercy is all rooted in the nature and character of God. This idea that God is so slow to anger, even his enemies that he's promising judgment against, he promises to forgive if they will turn. And this idea is something that grounds us. It gives us hope of why we're turning to God. But there's also a warning in this, a warning not to manipulate God, to know that he's the kind of God that if you repent, he might relent, opens us up to actually manipulation, to verbally say something that we don't actually feel in our heart. So, so jump back up to verse 13 at the beginning of it. He says, to rend your hearts and not your garments. It's a way of saying, would you not just give lip service or outward expression to repentance, but would you actually embody it in ways that actually are felt in your heart in ways that you actually are transformed and changed? Religious repentance is concerned with consequences. It's concerned with getting caught. It's concerned with your reputation. It's concerned with like what might happen if this gets exposed. So, so you're quick to repent to say sorry so bad things don't happen. Gospel repentance is rooted in God's love, is after wholeness and healing, wants to be set free, acknowledges its brokenness and sin towards God so that it will actually turn to God regardless of the consequences, regardless of what might happen in those spaces. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card if I pray the right prayers. Repentance is not a magic spell you cast that God then has to stop doing what he's doing. He says, rend your very heart, not your outward things. Have you been there before? Where you've known you've blown it, and so you go through the motions of saying sorry, and maybe you're going to like fast and pray to pay God back. 
You're going to be really, really diligent. You're going to try really, really hard in those spaces. What you're doing is trying to manipulate God. And it might have been the best you knew at the time, so there's no condemnation. All of us have been there. But what he's cautioning us about is the outward expressions of repentance to get God to do something rather than actually something going on inside your very soul. What do you do when the bottom falls out? You don't resort to religious ritual. Remember like after 9-11 how churches are just full of people the very next Sunday. Why? We've got to pray. We've got to fast. We've got to cry out to God. Why? Because then he'll stop doing what he's doing and he'll, he'll relent of that and read into that subtext a manipulation of God. We will do certain things, then God must respond a certain way. And when we do that, we expose not a heart of repentance, but a desire to control, a, a desire to manipulate the very God of the universe, the God of the pestilence, the God of the drought, the God of these armies. We're, we're actually trying to manipulate and control him so we can stay in that space. There's a warning in our devastation, in our brokenness, in our desperation, we'll grab a hold of anything to keep us afloat. And one thing you'll do is keep manipulating, trying to make your life better, to do religious things, to kind of organize yourself so that God might bless you. Hey, zero condemnation, friends, but a ton of warning there. To just stop and go, is what I'm doing, is it on the outside? Is it for my own show, people's show, to appear a certain way, am I trying to get something from God? Or is there something here that actually is genuine to my heart? I mentioned to you that the king of Nineveh quotes this passage, or actually Joel kind of probably talks about that space. He's engaging with this very question. Hey, let's call a fast. Who knows? God might relent. It seems heartfelt, and God actually does relent. The question would be, though, what if God didn't relent? And then you got angry. What if you'd went through the rituals of repentance, you fasted and prayed for the diagnosis to go away, for the relationship to be restored, for the child to come back, for, for the job to hold on, for you not to get caught, for it not to hit the news, for, for her not to leave you, for him not to do that again. What if you fasted and prayed and then the very same thing happened? How, how would you feel? To the degree you feel like God ripped you off or didn't hold up to his end of the bargain, I think that exposes an outward rending of the garments, not a heart rending. To say, whatever happens, real repentance is not concerned with the consequences. It understands the devastating nature of its own sin and turns to God. We don't have time to look at it, but, but in David's story, we see these same words. It's after his sin with Bathsheba. He commits adultery and then actually murders her husband. These are intense things. Prophet comes to David and says, as a consequence of this, the baby is going to die. And so he calls for a fast. He fasts sackcloth and ashes. He repents. He cries out to God. And then the baby actually does die. He gets up from that space and he cleans himself and kind of steps forward. And the people around him are super confused. They're like, wait a second, I thought the lamenting would come after the death why are you lamenting before now you're going on with your life and he says because God is just and good I prayed and asked not knowing if God would relent he chose not to I'm still going to follow him and worship him it's a complicated story but you have there this juxtaposition of one who's doing something to manipulate and one who says regardless of the consequences 
I'm going to repent because that's what God calls me to do. And if he relents, great. And if he doesn't, I'm still going to follow him. That would be a great litmus test for you. What do you do when the bottom falls out and you're tempted to manipulate? How would you know if you're manipulating or actually engaging genuinely with your soul? It's how you feel if it continues. Not that you couldn't be sad, not that you couldn't ask questions, not that you couldn't intensify your prayers, but to the degree that you say, God, I fasted and prayed and this still happened, it's not fair. In that moment, it exposes our religious heart's temptation to manage and manipulate. That's fairly complicated. But as we think about what is then real repentance, what does it look like? I want to use chapter 1 just really briefly to walk through what would like genuine repentance look like, right? This is a, a template Joel's giving us. When the bottom falls out, devastation has happened. You, you're repenting. He says, don't do this just outwardly. Do it with your heart. But what would that actually look like? Come back into chapter 1. Let me give you five things from chapter 1 that Joel highlights for us that, that signal to us like real repentance. N- number 1 comes in verse 5. He says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. The first thing he says to do is to wake yourself up to the illicit comforts you've been using. Hey, in your pain, you've been using something to numb the pain. Now it's all gone. Would you wake up? Would you have your eyes open to the nature of sin for itself? Would you see what you've been doing, how you've been trying to soothe and to cope apart from God? Would you awake to the ways that you illicitly use comfort. Stop in your pain. Acknowledge the way that you've tried to deal with things. Open your eyes to the real situation. The first thing is to wake up. Secondly, in verse 8, he says, Lament. He says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Lament like one who's dressed for a wedding and now finds herself at a funeral. Didn't do anything. It's something that happened to her, even the way Josh is leading our prayer time. Lament is this thing that we look around us and we feel brokenhearted for things that that are happening around to us. To wake up and then to lament, to cry out, to let let yourself feel it, to to engage it with your heart. The same way a, a bride, if on the way to the altar, her bridegroom died. Just put yourself in that space. How that, how that would feel, right? The lamenting and the wailing, the engagement with the brokenness, to feel that is what he's saying. Hey, would you go past just words to your heart? And that's not like a standard or a certain level you have to get to. I realize we have all kinds of different temperaments. For an engineer to lament is probably very different than a brooding artist to lament. That's okay. We're not talking about volume or how much tears. We're talking about something inside your soul that takes the brokenness serious. So not just use words, but to actually engage with your heart. Number 11, he said, or sorry, number three, from verse 11, he says, be ashamed. This is complicated. Stay with it for a second. So be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up and the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and Apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. If you're there in the text, look at the little footnote after it says, be ashamed. If you see there, it takes you down in there. It says that the word there actually sounds like the word for dried up. He's not pushing our face down in shame. He's saying, would you engage your part in this? 
realizing it has no like fruitfulness. It's dry. It's arid. It won't actually produce something that you actually need it to. There's nothing you could do to make yourself right with God. All the things that you would hope in are dried up. And would you engage with what you've done? If lament is things that have happened to you, then shame is something that we may say has something that we've actually done. There's a lot in our culture around shame these days. But there is a right kind of shame that, that simply says, hey, what you're doing isn't in keeping with who you are. Toxic shame pushes your face down and says, shame on you, you're not worthy. Redemptive shame lifts your face up. says, look, look, look up. You're different. Look, look, look. God has something better for you. Hey, look, there's something you don't have to do anymore that you used to have to do. Have your face lifted up. Toxic shame pushes you down and says you're not worthy. Redemptive shame lifts your face and says, oh, you're not living in light of the worth that you have. And all of us seek value and worth and manipulation other places, and it leaves you bankrupt. It's incredibly dehumanizing. The ways that you try to satisfy the pain of your heart leaves you empty and broken and dehumanized. So in those spaces for the scripture to say, hey, I'm saying this to your shame. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm saying that what you're doing actually isn't in keeping with you. I'm saying it to your shame. What he's saying is what you're doing isn't in keeping with one who actually has been set free. One who's already been loved, one who has nothing to prove. Would you actually engage with your whole heart in the things that you've done in light of what God has done for you? So wake up, lament, engage with the shame of what's happened. And then he says, repent in verse 13. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, and wail, O ministers of the altar. Go and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. After you've woke up to the severity of it, you've lamented for the pain around you, you've been honest about what's going on inside of you, now you're ready to repent. And the biblical framework of repentance is to be going one direction, to wake up to that, to feel the effects of it, own the consequences of it, and then to turn back around. So when he says to repent, it's a call back to the Lord. It's a call actually to have your heart drawn back to God. Wake up to the severity when the bottom falls out. Be honest about the pain. Engage with the ways you've tried to manage the pain in the way that you've actually dealt with illicit attempts to comfort yourself. And stop pursuing those things. Turn and pursue the one true God. And then fifth, he says, hey, set your gaze on the day that's still to come. Verse 15 says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. We'll spend some time next week on the day of the Lord just for time's sake. There's only one chapter in Obadiah, which will be in next week, which I'm super excited about. We'll spend some time unpacking the day of the Lord there. But essentially he's saying, hey, look forward to God. Look forward to the one who's to come. As you engage with your own brokenness, what real repentance looks like is to set your gaze on Jesus himself. New Testament will pull this phrase of the day of the Lord. It's when Christ returns. It's when he actually comes to make all things new. To set our hearts on the very one who actually is able to heal and to save us. Wake up. Feel it. Be honest about what's going on inside. Turn away from the illicit things back to God and then set your gaze on him. That's part of what it looks like to have your heart rended, 
not just your outer garments. And those are not like test tubes. They're not five distinct columns. Of course, they overlap. There's a lot of overlap in those spaces. But he gives us resources in chapter 1. After this thing has just happened, it blows their mind. It's the worst day they could imagine. It's the worst season they could imagine. It's the worst space they could imagine. He gives them a call back to God so they know what to do. There's this ravaging. There's this response of repentance. And then quickly there's this promise of restoration. God promises to come and actually heal. What's amazing, if you were to drop down in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, who knows if God will relent? And then we read this in verse 19 of chapter 2. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. Record scratch. Drought, pestilence, war. Repent, cry out to God. Who knows if God will relent? They repent, and then in verse 19, Hey, I'm sending you what you need, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. The very God who told them to repent said, To who knows? If you repent, I might, I might turn towards you. And he's not playing games. He's saying, would you stop manipulating and managing? Would you actually let your heart be broken to turn towards me? And remember, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he promises to restore. Can I just quickly give you four ways he restores? Chapter 2, verse 25. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, And I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten and the destroyer and the cutter. Remember these waves. God says, hey, I'm in the middle of this. And because I'm in the middle of this, I have the power to actually come and restore and catch this. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. So we don't get stuck in shame. So we don't get stuck in our past. We don't get stuck in our brokenness. To hear the good news that God is able amidst the devastation to actually restore and to help. To actually see things actually come to life again relationships come to life again maybe you deserve to get fired from that job and then as you deal with the brokenness inside of you it's not that God's going to give you a better job and more salary but God's going to take care of you the relationships that are broken and hard the, the spaces that feel utterly destroyed God says I have the ability to restore to you the years and just think about all the pain and what that means all the crying out, all the brokenness, all the loss, I can restore to you these things. And the best news is not just physical things. Drop down to verse 28 of chapter 2. Then it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. If you're taking notes, write down Ezekiel 36. This is the old covenant promise that God's going to come and take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. He's going to pour his spirit into us. And in the New Testament, Peter will take this passage and will talk about this as the being fulfilled at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Christ has died to pay for our sin. He was raised from the dead. He promised to not leave us alone. He sends his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And Peter sees that and says, this is the fulfillment of Joel. God's actually doing now what we most needed him to do to change our hearts from the inside out. He says, don't just repent from the outside. And God now says, actually, from the inside, I'm going to transform and change. There's a promise of renewal and restoration by God's Spirit to all of us. 
And then he goes on to say, and anybody who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. This is the third restoration. Look in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a promise that in your brokenness, in the tragedy, in the loss, when the bottom has fallen out, that if you cry out to God to be saved, he'll save and rescue you. And you don't have to manipulate and manage and do a whole bunch of stuff to get back into his good graces. You couldn't anyway. The fact that Jesus came to die in our place to give us his spirit gives us hope. Jesus will take this whole theme in John chapter 3 and talk about us being born again, being born of water and of spirit. And anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, the scriptures say, can be saved. And that includes you. Wherever you are in this devastation, wherever you are in the bottom falling out, wherever you find yourself, even questions about who God is, if you'll turn to him and trust him and what he's done for you through his son Jesus that all the prophets are pointing to, he promises that you can be saved. And the way he can do that takes us to our last kind of restoration. Look in verse 21 of chapter 3, the very last verse. He says, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And, And again, if you kind of engage this text here, you see there's another footnote and it says, I will acquit their blood. I will forgive their blood guilt. And we just stop and ask, man, how is that even possible? How could God actually promise to do something like that? And the New Testament tells us that Joel is pointing to the one who would come to die in our place, to spill his own blood so that we could be acquitted. When the bottom falls out, friends, you're honest about the brokenness You turn to God and you trust that he has what you need. And chiefly what he has that you need is his son, Jesus, who died in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. You can't manipulate him. And praise be to God, you don't have to. He already died in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. And what he asks you to do is to trust him. Jesus says to all who will believe, to those who will receive me, I give them the right to become children of God. That's what it means to respond to our brokenness. And Joel's giving us a template for that. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? I want to give you a second just to take a deep breath. We're about to take communion, which is the physical reminder of these things we're talking about. God dying in our place to make a way for us to be set free and forgiven. It's in his broken body and his shed blood that these promises are kept. And God shows himself to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take communion in a moment. All the aisles will have stations, tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. Regardless of your spiritual community, if you're trusting Jesus for your righteousness, I invite you to come. There'll be a gluten-free station here at the front in the middle. If you're not trusting Jesus, would you hear these words as an invitation to you? There's a warning in them, but every warning is an invitation. God telling us where we are What would happen if we don't turn to him so precisely we would turn to him? If you're not ready, there's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. Would you just cry out to God and ask for his help in this moment as you think about who he is, where you are, and and what would you do when the bottom falls out? Where where would you have hope? What, What could you do to actually rescue and save? There's nothing inside of ourselves, which is why Jesus came and died for us. Let me pray. Jesus, we ask now that you would fill the room with joy and hope. You are good and gracious. You proved on the cross that you are abounding in love. You're slow to anger. And you made it possible for us to have your spirit 
and to be saved. Would you speak now in the room and draw people to yourself? Grant repentance. Grant, grant honest lament. Wake us up. Help us return and respond to you because of who you are and what you've done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.